Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. So good to be here. Uh, If you're um, here today for your first time, uh, it's a great time for you to be here. We actually kicked off a new series last week called Do Not, and today we're continuing with the second lesson in this series um, and, and for these next few weeks, we, we started last week for today and, and for the next few weeks, we're actually going to be looking at some of the commands that Jesus gave um, while he was here during his, his three-year public career. Such a, 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 an amazing impact that he had on our world, obviously, but what's really amazing about it is that it happened within just a short period of just about three years. But when we talk about the commands of Jesus, especially in the context of this series, when we, when we think of the word command as it relates to Christianity or the Bible or Jesus or religion, uh, we kind of all have some kind of idea of what a command might be. We have some thoughts that come to mind and stone tablets and ten rules and all that kind of good stuff. But Jesus kind of left us with a little bit of an unexpected twist, I think, with some of the commands that he left um, his church and his followers. And I, I just kind of set up the background of what we're talking about. When Jesus showed up on the planet, he, he showed up to introduce and to launch something absolutely brand new. The, the world had never seen this before, and we call it the church. Um, the original Greek word is, is ekklesia, and it was more really, it was more almost like what we might call a political rally or, or some kind of, you know, cause or movement. And so Jesus kind of launched the Jesus movement, the ecclesia, the gathering of his followers. And it was based on this brand new covenant that Jesus was introducing to the world, a brand new way to be in contract or to be in relationship with God. And, and it had never been in existence before. And, and in fact, he, he walked around and he talked about the heavenly father quite a bit. And, and people didn't really know what to make of that. You know, we just think of God and God is God and he's way out there. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to think of him as, as your father, but not like a father who might disappoint or, you know, some of us in our lives, we, we know that our fathers aren't perfect. I'm certainly not a perfect father myself, but he's a heavenly father. He's like a father of a different place, of a different kind, and I want you to think of him that way. And it was, it was, it was paradigm shifting. It was, it was radical. It was transformational in the way that we interact and engage with God. And 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 he called some followers around him, and there were different groups of followers that he called. And some we, we're probably most familiar with the twelve disciples, those that were really close to him. But there were certainly other groups, larger groups, even of disciples called disciples um, that followed Jesus around, and and he engaged them with this mission that he had of launching this new thing. They called it the kingdom of God. Uh, later, they called it the way. It was the Jesus movement. It was all of these things. But they followed him, these followers, these disciples of Jesus's. they followed him because of the incredible claims that he made about himself. And I, I want to kind of set that up as a foundation in this series and something that we kind of think about as we go through these lessons. The foundation of the faith of the early church was not in Jesus's good sayings. There have been a lot of people throughout history that have had good sayings. They're, they're the foundation of their faith weren't, it wasn't even in his miracles that he performed. There were other people even during the time of Jesus who performed miracles, although Jesus certainly seemed to do it on a whole other level. But the foundation of the early followers of Jesus, the foundation of their faith was who Jesus claimed he was. And then he died. And once he died, their faith in him was shaken because it undermined everything that he had said about himself. He said he was the, the way, the truth, and the life. And then he died. How are you the life if you die? He claimed to be the son of God. How are you the son of God if you die? And, and when he died, it undermined everything that he claimed about himself. Because it just doesn't seem like you should be able to kill the resurrection and the life. And so game over for them. When Jesus died on the cross, the Jesus movement died. The Jesus ecclesia, what we would call the church, died with Jesus on the cross. They all unfollowed. Everybody went home and hid from the police. And then history tells us, and this is more than even just like the Bible says, if if you're, you know, a skeptic or you're not fully there in your faith, you're kind of trying to come back to faith, come back to your relationship with God, maybe trying to figure out 
all of that tension and all of your questions. It's even better than just the Bible says because history tells us that all of these followers of Jesus that had unfollowed and gone back home after what we call Easter morning, on Resurrection Sunday morning, they all came back and replugged back in to following Jesus. And, and they went out into the streets and they claimed, hey, we've seen him. We saw him die, yes, but a few days after that, he cooked breakfast for us on the beach. Jesus is alive, and it changed everything. And it was the foundation of the church and the Jesus movement that continued on from that. And even people who did not follow Jesus while he was alive in that three-year span of his public ministry, like the Apostle Paul, who ended up writing over half the New Testament. Paul shows up on the pages of history not as a Christian, but as a Christian hater. He hated Christians, hated the followers of Jesus, persecuted them, had them arrested, even had some of them stoned to death, put to death. And then Paul later claimed that he met the risen Jesus, and it completely changed his story, completely changed who he was and what cause he then championed. James, the half-brother of Jesus, another incredible witness who did not follow Jesus during Jesus' public career, which makes sense. If you have a brother or sister, you get why James did not follow Jesus. What would it take for your brother or your sister to convince you that they are, in fact, the Son of God? Yeah, they've, they've tried, right? Like, you're not buying it. Like, and James was the same way. In fact, one time, James took his mom, and they went to get Jesus because they thought maybe he's just been out in the sun too long. We need to bring him home and take care of the boy. Like, he's, he's, he did not believe who Jesus claimed to be. He thought he was delusional, and then he saw the Roman army, the Roman soldiers crucify who he thought was his delusional brother. But after the resurrection, James met his risen brother, and James gave the rest of his life to leading the Jesus movement. Wow, that's an incredible witness. It's a powerful witness for the validity of what Jesus launched. And, and all of these people went out, and, and these early Christians claimed that he was risen and that they had seen him. And even when people came to them and said, deny what you're saying, Admit that it's a lie or we're going to put you to death or torture you to death. The early Christians said, no, no, it's true. We've seen him. We cannot deny. And here's the thing. They weren't afraid of death anymore. You couldn't threaten them with death because their hero had just gotten up from being. Yeah. So, okay, threaten me with death. I know that my foundation or my faith rests on a firm foundation. So, Early Christianity spread, and it, it wasn't even about a Bible. It wasn't about churches and buildings. There, weren't, there wasn't a Bible in, in, in play for over 250 years. But that little movement, that little community of Jesus' followers began to spread and grow throughout that first century world, into the second century, third century world. And it all spread, and it all happened because of what regular people like you and me saw and experienced. And what they saw and what they experienced compelled them to live differently, to treat each other differently, to welcome in people into their fellowship, into their communities who before would have been excluded because of, of race or background or behaviors or past behaviors. And their broken and their hurting world was so hungry for the Jesus kind of love that those early communities had in them, that the Holy Spirit working within those early Jesus communities had and offered to the world. And those attitudes that they had and the spirit that they had and the behaviors that they exhibited to their world that invited their world in, they were all shaped by the commandments that Jesus had given his closest followers before he left. And see, before Jesus had left, he had, he had gathered his, his closest followers around him. And we know this is the Great Commission, if you're familiar with Christianity at all. And he told them, go into all the world, which was a big deal. Because they were just you know, comfortable going into the Jewish world. But he said, go into all the world and tell them what you've seen and make disciples of these and baptize them and teach them to everything that I've, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And he told them, and guys, I will be with you always. And then he left. <laughs> I will be with you always. And then he left. But he sent back the Holy Spirit, a way to be in constant relationship, a way to be in constant conversation with him, not limited by a physical body, not limited by time or space, so much better than what they had experienced before. But there they were, the New Testament, what we call the New Testament church, on the scene, trying to figure things out. No, the Bible 
to reference. No New Testament written. No organizational structure or literature. Just this clear and compelling mission. Just a a Holy Spirit living inside of them. And then the memories of the early apostles of, of what Jesus had said during his three years. The memories of the miracles and the eyewitnesses of the miracles and the memories of the parables and the different sermons that Jesus preached. And, and then there were these commands that Jesus had given them. But man, the commands were really confusing and they didn't even make sense until after they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Commands like, do not fear. Anybody ever been afraid and had somebody tell you, don't be afraid? How good did that work? Right? Commands like, do not worry, right? Well, worry comes whether I want to worry or not. And Jesus was teaching that worry exposes a breakdown in your understanding of just how much God loves you. So based on what I've done and based on what I've shown you, do not worry. He gave commands like, do not sin, to which, you know, we think, well, you know, everybody sins. And Jesus kind of gave this teaching. We're going to talk about this over the next couple of weeks. That sin killed me. Don't let sin kill you. Commands like, do not judge. And boy, people who don't go to church love that one, don't they? Do not judge. And then believers, sometimes we misunderstand or or misapply that. But today we're looking at another seemingly impossible do not command that Jesus gave us. And it's this command right here. Thou shalt not doubt. Come on, somebody say this with me. Ready? Thou shalt not doubt. Turn to somebody close to you and tell them. But we do anyway, don't we? We're just all kinds of commandment breakers around here. We just, it's just like, don't worry. It's just like, don't be afraid. I mean, just, you know, nobody wants to doubt. We all want to believe, right? We don't schedule doubt. It's not like we put doubt in our calendars. Like next Tuesday after I go to the dentist, I'm going to doubt a little bit, you know, but we all doubt whether we want to or not. But what Jesus says about doubt and why he tells us not to doubt is so It's so powerful, and it helps us kind of plow through this this doubt that we don't want to have as Jesus followers. But I want to set some expectations this morning. Listen, when Jesus told us not to doubt what he tells us to do about it, it does not stop doubts from coming. He did not say, don't ever have a doubt. What he said was, don't doubt. And there's a big difference between those two things. We can't stop the doubts that come our way, but what we do with those doubts That's what really, really matters. So we all have doubts our way, and that does not make us a sinner. If you have doubts, that does not make you a sinner. Somebody breathe a sigh of relief in the room. Yeah. (laughs) One more time with your neighbor. You ready? Turn to them and tell them, your doubt does not make you a sinner. And then tell them, it's all those other things. (laughs) No, no. No, don't tell him that. Don't, don't say that. But when Christians have doubts, really, it, it kind of falls into two broad categories. And if you're not a Christian, you may have more categories than this, but I think you could probably still relate. But if we're, as Christians, when we have doubts, usually it falls under the question of, is it worth it? Like if God tells me something, if God tells me to believe something, trust something, do something, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And then the other thing we doubt and, and we struggle with is, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Is it worth it if I'm a Christian and I'm missing out on something? Is it worth it if I, as a Christian, need to give up something, make sacrifices that other people don't have to make? Is it worth it? Or is it true? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did Jesus really tell me to do this? Do I really need to add this into my life or take this out of my life? Is it worth it? Is it true? And and where we're going this morning, I kind of want to give this away up front. We struggle with doubts. We struggle with and we wrestle with these things when we forget what the epicenter, what the the crux of our faith is, when we lose sight of what the actual foundation of our faith is, that this whole thing, this following Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus, it all got momentum and it was all proved true by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the issue that you, at some point in your personal faith story, you're going to have to wrestle to the ground for yourself. Christianity exists because Jesus got up from the dead. I'm going to say that again. Christianity exists because Jesus got up from the dead. And when he got up from the dead, it validated every promise he had ever made. The promises of Jesus are pointless if he stayed in the grave. But when he got up, it 
punctuated everything he said. It put an exclamation point on every promise that he gave to us. And now we can face doubt and we can face worry and we can face our fears, all of these things, because Jesus got up from the dead. But we still have doubt. We still have fears. We still have worries. And men and women and the early Christians, uh, the, the early Christians, they had extraordinary fear and crippling worry and, and even sin at different points in their lives. And after they had unfollowed Jesus when he was crucified, just a few days after that, they then roared back onto the scene and ended up giving their lives to spread the Jesus message, not because of what they believed and not because of, you know, lots of people have given their lives for what they believe throughout history. They gave their lives and they made sure that this message went on because of what they had seen with their own eyes. And it went beyond belief for them. It was evident, it was physical, it was reality, it was right there. There was no doubt at all. And that is the foundation of the Christian church. That's what launched the church and caused it to spread against all odds, against impossible odds. And that's why Christians are able to take Jesus seriously when he tells us, do not doubt. But we still doubt. And how do we get past it? And if you have doubts this morning, guess what? You're in good company. 100% of Jesus's first century followers doubted. They all doubted. John the Baptist showed up on the scene. He was the announcer of Jesus. Hey, the kingdom is coming. The, the king of kings is coming. The rescuer is coming. One day he's down baptizing people and he tells everybody, hey, turn and look. It's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world. And then John the Baptist got arrested. And while he's arrested and sitting in prison, he sent some of his followers to ask Jesus, basically, if I can sum it up this way, since I'm talking this way in my message, to ask Jesus, is it worth it? And is it true? Is what you have asked me to do worth it? And is what I believed about you actually true? The 11 to 12 closest guys to Jesus, the apostles, when he is arrested, they ran away. They left him. They abandoned him. And basically what they said was, it ain't worth it. And we're not really sure it's true. So unfollow. I'm going to do a takesy-backsy. I'm running away. I'm out of here. I'm not going to jail with you. In fact, one of the 12, this is, this is amazing to me, one of the 12 apostles actually got a nickname later on because of his doubt. And it wasn't even doubt before Jesus rose from the dead. This was after Jesus rose from the dead. The other 11 are like, hey, we've seen him. We actually saw him right there. And one guy said, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it for myself. He got a nickname. Anybody know what his nickname was? You guys all know. You guys should come up here and preach. I shouldn't have put that in there because you already knew that. And none of these people, though, that doubted, none of the early followers of Jesus that doubted got kicked out of the club. None of them were disinvited to follow Jesus. But after their doubts, they were re-invited to plug back in and rejoin the movement, which is great news for us, isn't it? That wrestling with doubt doesn't get you kicked out. That rhymes. Ready? We're going to say it together. Wrestling with doubt. Some of y'all can't rhyme. You have no rhythm, no cadence at all. I saw you clapping during worship too. It was just, I know who you are. Uh, but no, this is a big deal because so many of us wrestle and, and, and so many people, when I talk to them, they, they tell me, I'm, I'm just not sure about that. I'm just not sure about that. I'm not sure if I want to take that step. I, I'm having a hard time believing this or, or really kind of accepting that into my life. And it becomes an excuse for not taking a step of faith. And doubt can sometimes disqualify us in our own minds and in our own eyes, even though doubt will never get us kicked out from Jesus' side of the relationship. But here's the thing. If I didn't follow Jesus unless I understood everything perfectly, I wouldn't be here either. That's an impossible standard for us to uphold for ourselves. You don't have to believe everything to be able to hold on to something and trust Jesus for what you don't yet know. Hello. You don't have to be able to understand everything before you can trust Jesus for something. I mean, that's not even a, that's not even a religious thing. That's like a life thing. You don't even know how your microwave works but you trust it to heat up your frozen pizza, don't you? Or dinner for your kids. Can I hear a what, what from some moms in the room, right? You don't need an explanation 
for every single thing. You don't get explanations in any other category or area of your life, but you still have to trust that you have to do something and put something into action. Hello? But sometimes when it comes to our relationship and fo- with God and following Jesus, we want to know everything, see everything, understand everything, have everything laid out and spelled out for us and not have any doubt or any worry. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. don't do that. Do not doubt. And the men and the women who followed Jesus, they ate dinner with Jesus, talked face-to-face with Jesus. They all had doubts. They all still wrestled with The women who went to the tomb on Easter morning with spices for Jesus' body. Why did they go to the tomb on Easter morning with spices for Jesus' body? Because they thought he was still dead. They doubted that he would be raised from the dead. All of them doubted that Jesus had actually gotten up from the dead until they saw him raised from the dead. So this is good news, especially if you're newer to following Jesus, especially if you're maybe starting to read your New Testament for the first time or you know, signing up for a small group, kind of trying out this Christian life, and you're not sure how it's going to go, and you've had experiences before, and you've had hurts and setbacks before, you know, and, and you're beginning maybe to pray consistently for the first time or starting to attend church consistently for the first time. Like your mom's so proud of you, right? Your mom's so proud of you because you're starting to attend church for the first time, beginning to grow in your faith. But, but you have questions. That's okay. That is okay to have doubts and to have questions come to you. Apparently, Jesus has always been okay with people following him who had doubts. Having doubts come into your heart and mind is not bad. It can lead to discovery. It can lead to a greater depth of trust. It can lead you out into uncharted territories and and open waters, and there's greater trust on the other side. So why did Jesus tell us not to doubt? This is why Jesus told us not to doubt. Because even though wrestling with doubt will never get us kicked out, our own doubts can pull us out. We can remove ourselves from the relationship. We can remove ourselves from following Jesus when we let doubt take over. Doubt can pull you out. Doubt can drown out the voices of faith and trust that are trying to speak into your life and lead you into a greater and deeper relationship with God. Doubt can cause a blackout of just the hope and the light that you have seen in Jesus, what has caught your attention and what has brought you to him for this moment. When doubt creeps in and you don't deal with it, but you let doubt, you know, like get an address in your brain and take up space, doubt can block the light and the hope that we so desperately needed when we came to Jesus to begin with. So Jesus said, do not doubt. Doubts are going to come whether you want them or not, but when you face doubt, you need to kick it out. And Peter, who was one of the closest disciples of Jesus, he, he learned this in this, this hugely dramatic you know, scene in the New Testament. And Anybody heard the story of when Peter walked on the water with Jesus? Anybody heard that? Nobody. Nobody raised their hand. Good. You guys knew the other thing, but now you're going to hear a new story. He was like one of the closest disciples of Jesus. He was one of the 12 closest disciples of Jesus, and they're, they're rowing across the Sea of Galilee one night, and they're rowing into a headwind, and they're like, it looks like they're moonwalking, but they're rowing, you know, like they're rowing really hard, but the boat's not really going anywhere. It's not really making any progress. And Mark, when Mark tells us about the account, he tells us that Jesus comes walking by the boat and makes as if he's just going to keep passing them by. Like, you know, whistling on his way to work, like, hey, guys, how's it going? And just keeps on walking. And they're rowing, rowing, and not making any progress. And Jesus just keeps on going. Anybody ever been stuck in traffic so bad, like the pedestrians are walking faster than you? Like, that's what was going on. The boat's at a standstill. Jesus is walking by, and Peter's like us in heavy traffic. Anybody do this? Like, your lane's going really slow, and the two beside you are going fast. What do you do? You switch lanes. As soon as you switch lanes, what happens? It's, yeah, it's exactly right. You guys live in the Bay Area. And so Peter sees Jesus walking by, and he's like, hey, I'm going to switch lanes. Jesus, cool trick. And, so, and I love this part of the story. Peter says to Jesus, if you will call me, which is a big deal. If you will call me, Jesus, I'd like to switch lanes. I'd like to step out of the boat and walk on the water with you which is a big deal because you doing something outside of your comfort zone needs to be a God idea and not just a good idea. You need God's permission to go somewhere. 
This is not about the power of positive thinking. In Christian circles, we call it name it and claim it. This is not Christian blab it and grab it. That's not what this story is about. What this is about is Jesus, I see you at a place where I want to be. So can you call me to where I am not? Will you invite me into a greater experience? Will you invite me into bigger faith? Because if he invites me to come out on the water, well, I don't believe in myself, but I believe in Jesus. I can trust in what he has called me. If there's something Jesus asks me to do, then I trust that he would never, ever ask me to do more than I could handle. And I, I think Jesus kind of smiles when Peter asks him to invite him out on the wall. I think Jesus is probably a, a little bit impressed. And we kind of give Peter grief for this, right? Because he gets out the boat and what happens? He sinks. His lane slows down, right? And we kind of give Peter grief for that. But he's the only one out of the boat. He's the only other man that has ever walked on water besides Jesus. So Jesus tells him, come on out. The water's fine. And Peter steps out of the boat, and Peter starts walking on water. Amazing. Incredible. And then Peter starts having doubt. Doubt. And we get kind of a breadcrumb, a, a clue of what goes on and how to handle doubt. When, when he saw, talking about Peter, when he saw the wind. Now, you can't see wind, right? When he saw the effects of the wind. When he saw the circumstances that the wind was producing. When he saw the circumstances that the forces that were against him were whipping into a frenzy all, of around, all around him, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Somebody say, me too. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Anybody ever prayed that prayer before? Come on, anybody ever been in a moment of crisis and you just cried out? You didn't know what else to say. It was all happening too fast. You couldn't put your thoughts together. And all you could get out is, Lord, save me. Thank God he does not need fancy prayers. Thank God he does not... Mm. Thank you, Jesus. So good. So good. We've all prayed a version of this prayer. And I love what verse 31 tells us. Immediately. Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. But he says to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter had doubt. Jesus had called him out of the boat. And I mean, just like, I don't know how much longer. It doesn't tell us, but it seems like just seconds before. Jesus has invited him, but suddenly Peter is wrestling with doubt. But here's the beautiful thing. Doubt did not make Jesus pull his hand back. Jesus did not let Peter go under. Jesus did not see his doubt and not answer his prayer. But he caught Peter in his doubt. And then he just asked him a simple question. Aren't you glad that your doubt does not disqualify your prayers? Our little faith, our tiny faith that we have sometimes. When God has just moments before called us into something, when we have doubt, his goodness and his faithfulness overcomes all of our doubt and overcomes all of our weakness and overcomes all of of our fears. Jesus is good even when I am not. And having doubt did not make Jesus pull his hand back, but he asks him a very simple question. Why? Why? Why did you doubt? And the answer is that Peter started to doubt when he focused on the water instead of the one walking on the water. And this is us. And this is why this is so important. Because us, at different times and to different degrees in our, 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 our following Jesus, we're going to take a step to follow Jesus. We, we come to God a lot of times because there is pain in our lives. There's crisis in our life. Pain is a great teacher, or it can be. You ever see some people that don't listen to pain? Pain can be a great teacher, and, and we come, and, and we, we kind of replug back in, and it's, you know, we're just like, Jesus, I'm going to try this again, and you, you pray a prayer, and, or you have that moment where, you know, okay, God, kind of, here I go, and we take different steps, and we're called to different steps in following Jesus. Might it, it might be starting prayer. It might be baptism. It might be that you know that you need to ask God to forgive some things in your life. It might be that you need to join yourself deeper and tie yourself in deeper to the church community, and you're a little bit scared of that. Maybe you're starting to pray at home, or maybe you want to start reading the Bible for yourself. At some point, you're going to do something because you're hoping that Jesus will save you. 
that Jesus will take you to a different place. But when you look up, and we all do this, when we look up at the circumstances around us, it doesn't seem like the circumstances are getting any better. The storm is still going on. Jesus has called us out on the boat. We're walking in a place we've never walked with him before, but everything is still in turmoil and hell around us. And we don't know what else to do. And so we cry out, Jesus, save us. And he overcomes our doubts. And he takes care of the circumstances. I mean, how many times have we joined Jesus taking a step of faith? And it turns out we prayed the wrong prayer. You ever think maybe Peter prayed the wrong prayer? Like, why didn't he pray Jesus take the storm away? Think about it. Anybody ever prayed the wrong prayer? You're willing to admit Anybody ever heard Brother Garth Brooks sing before? Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. Rita? Where's Rita? Rita's my only country Western fan. And James Hightower. James Hightower likes customer. Starting a rumor, James. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. No? All right, moving on. Scratch that one from the notes. There we go. Just like, aren't you glad sometimes that God doesn't answer the Because we pray for the wrong thing sometimes. We're focused on the wrong pain point sometimes. But thank goodness he always knows what we need. And when we pray for the wrong things, but our circumstances are still raging around us, we will start to doubt and we will start to wonder, is it worth it? And is it true? Is it worth it for me to be here? And is it true that Jesus can still save me? Things aren't working out like you thought they should work out. Things aren't working out like you expected them to work out. What did Peter think it would feel like when he stepped onto the water in the middle of a storm? But Jesus is still faithful even when we are not. We've never been in this place before. We've never walked here before. We've never followed Jesus into this before. But if Jesus called us out onto the water, then the problems that we face are no longer our problems. If you take yourself out of your mess and put yourself into Jesus' plan, the problems and the obstacles that you face are no longer your problems, and they're no longer your obstacles. The doubts that you're wrestling with are doubts you should not be wrestling with because the problem is not yours. The pain is not supposed to be yours anymore. You're in the will of God. You're walking next to him. You're walking with him. He has called you. He has invited you. So let it go. Get rid of your doubt. Do not doubt because the one who has overcome the world is the one who has called you to where you are. But we start to look at the storm instead of keeping our eyes on Jesus. And he is the one that called us out there. And Jesus reached out and he caught him. He caught him immediately, it says. And he pulled him up. And then he put him back in the boat and Jesus walked out. I don't know what, you know, you could figure that out for yourself. But after that, do you know that after that, anytime Peter doubted, do you know what he did? Or he had doubts come to him. Do you know what Peter did with those doubts after that? He still doubted. He didn't learn a lesson, and it's the same for us. It's a constant struggle for all of us. And there's another time that we see the disciples struggling with this doubt, and, and it's in John chapter 6, which is just such a difficult passage to read. I mean, there's, Jesus says some things in John chapter 6 that are just so weird and so strange. And, and, and again, this story is mainly about his 12 closest guys, and, and they, they kind of start wrestling with their doubts because of what Jesus says. But this is a big moment. This is a big deal. The thing they're wrestling with at this time, it's, it's, it's all or nothing time, really, for them. It's, if they give in here, it's like we never hear from them again. And we know this is true because there were other Jesus followers there. And they gave in to their doubts. And they walked away. And we don't know their names. But the 12 closest followers of Jesus stand on the edge of obscurity. And they have no idea what hangs in the balance of them winning the battle over their doubts. They, if they give in, Like anybody in the room named Peter, James, or John, you'd have different names because we wouldn't know about the Peter, James, and John who followed Jesus, and they're the ones that made those names famous. And they're on the edge of allowing doubt to rob them of their trust in Jesus. And here's the scenario. Jesus 
just a little bit before. He, he's done this actually twice, just, just recently before this story takes place in John chapter 6. He's just done the miracle, remember, where he broke all the bread and fed all the people and gave them all the free food. And it was an again thing. It was a second time in just a couple of chapters. And, and, and we kind of don't get this in our culture because we have like restaurants on every corner and fast food and, and frozen pizza and all that kind of good stuff. But for them, food was hard to come by. These miracles about Jesus feeding the people, they're so important, and there's so many of them recorded in the Gospels, because in those days, food was a struggle. Scarcity of food was a struggle for everyone, so food was almost like gold, right? And Jesus has just fed everyone, and everybody then and now likes free food. I thought I'd get more amens from that one, right? And so they followed Jesus, the crowd, thousands of people follow Jesus around a lake, and, and they meet up with him on the other side. And, and, and why did they do that? Because of free food. And they tell Jesus, like, hey, we're ready to make you king. We're going to make you the king of everything right now because you give us free food. Yes, they love food. And so on the other side of the lake from where Jesus was serving out you know, free tortillas, he starts giving them these metaphors about food, and, and he starts telling them, hey, the bread that I gave you yesterday, it only lasts for a little while. You guys are here again because you're hungry again. What I gave you to put in your mouth and put in your belly, it doesn't last forever. But I, I'm the bread of life. And if you eat the bread that I want to give you, you're never going to go hungry again. And they think, wow, we'd never be hungry again. It's a constant struggle for us with hunger. It's a constant struggle with us to have enough food for us and our families and our children. So, Jesus, how do we get this bread? We want this bread. Jesus, where is this bread? And Jesus kind <clears> of <throat> clears his throat, looks him in the eye, and he says, so you need to eat my body. Everybody kind of, you know, wrinkles their brows, kind of like we did right now, right? Everybody steps back, and moms kind of gasp and cover the ears of small children, and it's just like just in time because it gets even worse. And Jesus says, and not only that, you need to drink my blood. And he gives that Dracula. No, he didn't give the Dracula laugh. He didn't do that. The 12 disciples are like, cut off, somebody cut off his microphone. Jesus is, is starting to lose the crowd and the women and small children start drifting towards the back and things start getting tense and people start shuffling their food because they're starting to realize we followed Jesus all the way around the lake because we thought we'd get more free food and now he's telling us he wants us to eat his body and drink his blood. And so the crowd starts pulling away. Well, the disciples start getting nervous and we don't get this sometimes because for them, the crowd meant safety. See, the crowd, as long as there was a crowd around Jesus, the people that wanted to arrest Jesus couldn't arrest him. The people would have been in an uproar. There would have been an uprising and a revolt. And in fact, that's how Judas betrayed Jesus, right? He told them where Jesus would be alone and when Jesus would be alone. That's why Jesus was arrested at night in the garden because there was no crowd around. But the disciples are starting to see the crowd disperse now and they're starting to get nervous. I mean, they've been rock stars now for months, right? And Mark, as a matter of fact, you look at the gospel according to Mark. Every chapter but two mentions the word, has the word crowd in it. Crowd, crowd, crowd. There was always a crowd around Jesus, and that was, it was intentional. That was the dynamic that was going on, and it's what gave them their sense of safety, the disciples. But Jesus is feeding people and healing people, and crowds love Jesus. But now, this sermon, Jesus is starting to lose the crowd. And the disciples, when they see the crowd going away, and then when they realize that Jesus isn't backing down from this weird message, he's doubling down on this weird message. And he goes on and he talks, he says more weird things in John chapter 6. Read it for yourself this week. Jesus says more things that are hard, hard to understand. And the disciples start wrestling with the two questions. Is it still worth it to follow Jesus? And is what he is saying actually true? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it true? Is it true? And if we lose the crowd, then we're in trouble. If we lose the crowd, we could get arrested along with him. Rome had crucified rebels. They had crucified hundreds of leaders of Jewish uprising. The disciples knew exactly what was in play if they lost the crowd. And so Jesus, if you're not going to keep a crowd around you, then is it worth it to be here? Is it worth it to follow you? Is 
it true. And John tells us in John chapter 6 and verse 60, on hearing it, this saying, these weird, this weird speech that Jesus was giving, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Who can accept it? Now, this was the larger group of disciples, not just the 12 closest, but sometimes 70, a lot of times more than that, people that would follow Jesus around. But when they heard this, many of those disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And it tell, John tells us, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him because their doubt got the best of them. And when they asked themselves the question, is it worth it? And is it true? They decided, no, it's not worth it to follow Jesus. It's getting too dangerous. And that part about eating his body and drinking his blood, that just that can't be true. This is too hard and this is too much. And it's been easy following him till now. It's been crowds and applause and magic tricks and healings and everybody's smiling and happy. But now, what is this? Like, Jesus, why would you say that? Why would you ask that, right? And, and, and for the larger group of disciples and the ones that unfollow with this teaching, and then also for the, the smaller group, the 12 closest to Jesus, this is the thing. They have no idea what was hanging in the balance of their decision that day to walk away from following Jesus or to stay. Now, this is a huge point. We've got to get this because in that moment of doubt, the reason that we doubt is because we're really not sure if what we're doubting about and wrestling with is worth it. If that larger group of disciples knew the history of the church that was to follow, if that larger group of disciples knew about resurrection morning, do you think they might have stayed? Yes. Yes, they would have stayed. Yes, they would have hung in there. But in that moment, Easter morning hadn't happened yet. And it was cloudy, and it was foggy, and they had no idea what was on the other side of their decision to walk away or to stay. And that's where we are. We're wrestling with our doubt. We're struggling with something. We're not sure how we feel about how things are turning out. And the reason that we're struggling with it is because where we are now, we can't see the future. And we don't know if what we're wrestling with and struggling with is going to be worth it. Think about it. Think about it. Jesus had called them into a movement that would shape the course of history. Jesus had called them into a calling, a ministry that would impact lives, that would bring healing to the broken, that would bind up the wounded and set people free from all kinds of addictions and behaviors. But they don't understand the full scope of Jesus' calling on that side of the cross. They had not seen him get up from the dead in a new kind of life. They didn't know that yet. All they knew was their doubts. All they knew were their fears and their worries. They did not understand the love that would be unleashed on the world. They did not understand the resurrection and the life that would take away their own guilt and their own sins and their own shame and leave them completely brand new in Jesus' eyes. And that is us. You've been there. That's your story on these pages. It's our story in these verses. We've been around faith and we've been around church and we've, we've you know, struggled and wrestled with our religion before and we had some hopes and dreams and it seemed like everything was rolling in the right direction and then this came and then that happened to you and then that was said about you. And then that came up out of nowhere and it became this big obstacle and it didn't make sense. And in that moment, you couldn't understand God. And in that moment when you prayed, it didn't make any sense, the answer that came back to you. And it didn't seem like God understood what was going on. And it rocked your faith. And it made you question Jesus. Jesus, what are you saying? And, and what are you doing? And everything seemed like it was heading in the right direction. But now this. And I just don't know if it's still worth it. And I'm just not sure if what I thought was your voice before is actually true. And we all, we all find ourselves in these moments. 
what we call crisis of faith, these moments where we're not sure if we're going to keep going on or not, and we're left so distraught, and we're left so unsure, and we vacillate back and forth and, and wobble back and forth. Some days we're good, and other days we're down. Some days we're great, and other days it's just not so great. And we pray, but other days it feels like we can't, and we're just not sure. Jesus, is it worth it? Jesus, if what you, is, is what you said to me actually true? Is it actually true? And that's exactly where the disciples of Jesus are. They saw the crowd start to walk away. They saw the other disciples start to walk away. Brothers and sisters of theirs in Christ walking away from Jesus at that time. And doubt is rolling in like a fog. And doubt is clouding their vision of how they should respond. And I love this. In that moment of doubt, in that moment of unsureness, in that moment of, of hesitancy and, and, and just wrestling with this thing, Jesus turns to the 12. And I love this question. He asked them, you don't want to leave too, do you? You don't want to leave too, do you? And they knew better than to lie to Jesus. Come on, somebody. We all should know better than to lie to Jesus. But they had seen Jesus do it a hundred times, talking with someone, and he knows what the person's really thinking. And then, bam, Jesus hits them with this, this whammy thing, right, and exposes everything. And, and, there's, you know, just, and these 12 are so busted. Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. Jesus knows that they're doubting. And in their minds, they're thinking, well, yeah, Jesus, we want to leave, or at least we're, we're thinking about it because this is getting hard. And we're losing our protection and things are starting to feel dangerous and, and unsafe and we're not sure if it's worth it. And, and, and what you're telling people to do is, is just so hard and it's so confusing and we're not sure if that's true. And, and their doubt was on the verge of taking them out of the Jesus movement. Those 12 faced the same exact obscurity that that larger group of disciples had drifted into just moments before. And there, there they are wrestling with this when suddenly Peter, the guy that stepped out of the slow lane, the guy that asked Jesus to invite him on the way. Peter gets such a bad rap for being the loudmouth in the Jesus group. Anybody know somebody that's always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time? Don't raise your hand. No pointing in church, right? Just hands down, elbows in, right? Peter's that guy. Always being just, you know, blurting things out. But the thing is, we don't give Peter enough credit because when Peter gets it right, Man, Peter gets it right. And this is so powerful. What Peter says next is so powerful. You have to get this. If you've been, if you've been counting lights, you've been looking at how many boards are behind me. I, I grew up in church. I know what you do during a message, right? I used to count ceiling tiles. We don't have ceiling. You can't see the ceiling here. So I just come back, come back in just for a little bit. Like you have to wrap your mind around what Peter says next. You have to get this. You have to wrap your mind about it around it, and then after you think about it, you need to start wrapping your heart around it. And Simon Peter answers Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Jesus, if we don't stick with you, who are we going to end up stuck with? Jesus, if we don't stay close to your side, who else is going to take us in? Jesus, who else is going to love us like you have loved us? Jesus, who else is going to call us out of the obscurity that we were already in before? Why would we drift back into obscurity now when you have called us to greatness? Jesus, to whom shall we go? Jesus, we didn't deserve to be here with you. We don't deserve to be in your crew. Jesus, where else are we going to go? City Grace, where else are you going to go? Who else are you going to turn to? Nobody loved you like Jesus has loved you. Nobody took away the guilt that Jesus has taken away. Nobody else has erased your shame and your past and buried it under his own blood. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. And when you face your doubts and when you face your worries, you need to ask the question, where else can I go? Come on, can you give him thanks and praise for his kindness and his mercies in your life? Doubt is going to come, whether you want it or not. Doubt is going to come. 
you put it on the calendar or if you did not and we do not, doubt will, doubt will creep into your mind and seep into your mind and try and undermine your trust in what he has said to you and what he is calling you to. And when you're wrestling with the questions, is it worth it? And is it true? Is it worth it? And is it true? This is the question that you need to ask your doubt. If not Jesus, then who? If not Jesus, then who? If not the one that gave his life as a covering for mine, then who? If not the most loving, wonderful, radiant, brilliant figure that has ever, ever called me into relationship with himself, if not him, then who? Jesus, where else could we go? 2,000 years ago, this question was spoken and it still resonates so brilliantly today. If not Jesus, then who? And when suddenly it looks like it's going to cost you a lot more than what you thought it was going to cost you. When suddenly you're having to face down your pride and stare a sacrifice in the face and give up your way for his way and you're wrestling with, is it worth it? And I'm not even sure if it's true. When what he's asking seems offensive on the front end and it doesn't make a lot of sense that you can see, then ask yourself, if not Jesus, then who? Because here's the thing, when you step away from Jesus, you step towards something else. We don't see it that way because most of the time when we're running away from something, we're looking over our shoulder and we're so busy looking over our shoulder that we can't see clearly what we are running to. But Peter, Peter turned his head around and he looked ahead of a life running away from Jesus and he turned back around. Wait, wait, wait. Jesus, if we leave you, where else can we go? To whom shall we go? And then Peter, again, Peter, Loudmouth Peter, but so brilliant Peter takes it to a whole nother level. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Nobody else is talking to us about the life after this life. Nobody else is giving us worth beyond the days that we have already lived. Prevailing wisdom of science and evolution and humanism tells us that we're just a collection of, of random biological accidents. But Jesus, you're telling us our lives have worth. You're telling us that our lives have meaning. You're telling us that we were made on purpose for a purpose. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. And I'm telling you this morning, today, Jesus has those same words of eternal life for you. Today, you can bring Jesus every wasted day from your past and get a guarantee of a brighter day in your future. Today, all over this room is person after person and story after story that would agree with me and tell you that you can bring God your failure and you can leave this room with his Holy Spirit filling up your life, bubbling over out of your life and leading you to live the kind of life he designed you to live. Peter goes on, we have come to believe. We have come to believe. Help me out. There we go. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One God. You're the one that God has promised a fallen and broken creation. From the time that humans first turned their back on God, from the time that we as people, by our own free choice, just chose to close our eyes to the evidence of God's goodness and believe the lie that he was not good. Ever since then, the creator has promised that one day he would send a rescuer. One day he would send someone who would so beautifully restore his image and, and the picture of God to us that we would again begin to hope and believe that God was good and good for us again. So Jesus, I'm not sure it's worth it. And this is getting difficult and it's getting dangerous. And Jesus, I'm not sure if I understand it all. And eating your flesh and drinking your blood, it's just, I mean, surely that can't be true. I don't really, it's got to be a metaphor for something. But Jesus, there's something about you. There's too much evidence of your goodness and your kindness. And now we've come to believe exactly who you are. So Jesus, where else would we go? To whom shall we go? And then Jesus answered him and said, you ain't seen nothing yet, bro. <laughs> Jesus didn't say that. You know, that's not in the Bible. That's Jared. You see the reference down there? Don't look for that one. That one's not really in the Bible. I did that. That's, that's not that. But here's why I put that up there. And here's why you need to hear this. And here's why you need to think about this. Because in that moment, they had no idea what they almost walked away from. In that moment, they had no idea what was hanging in the balance of their struggle with doubt. In that moment, 
They could not see 2,000 years into the future in a little town called Fairfield where this gathering of people would be sitting gathered together, freely washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, lifting our hands together in praise and appreciation, filled with the promised Holy Spirit because of a message that Peter preached one day. He had no idea what hung in the balance. At that point, they still don't know if it's worth it. At that point, they still haven't seen the cross. They still don't even know if it's true. They don't, Jesus hasn't gotten up from the grave yet. At that point, it's all just a bunch of good sayings until he proves it by, right, by being raised from the dead. The only thing that had changed in that moment was the clarity that they gained when they asked themselves the question, if not Jesus, then who? If not Jesus, then who? And I think Jesus looked at him. And I think he looked at those 12 disciples and I think he smiled because he knew they had no idea what Jesus was about to unleash on a broken and hurting world through those 12 men. And Peter couldn't see the outcome, but his question led him to follow beyond his doubts. Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? And then Peter and the rest of the 12, you know, you know what they did after that? They doubted some more. They doubted again. But you know what they did after that second and third time doubting? They doubted again. And they doubted again. All the way up to the point where they saw a risen Jesus, and one of them even doubted after that. But Jesus never kicked them out. In fact, those doubting apostles were the ones that roared out into their streets and proclaimed that they had seen a risen and living Jesus, that we have seen him, God has raised him, he's the rescuer we were waiting for, so change your allegiance, repent of your sins, be baptized in his name, and you will be filled with his Holy Spirit. They went and preached that message even though they still had doubts come their way. And they launched the Jesus movement even though they still had doubts that followed them all through the process. But they never allowed doubt to reign again. They never gave in to the doubt or doubted anymore that Jesus was in fact worth following through the process because they had answered the question for themselves. We can't go anywhere else. There's nobody else like Jesus. And God used those early believers to spread that good news and to give us the good news of rescue and forgiveness that has given us hope in this room given us hope, and he's given us reason to doubt not, to worry not, to sin not, to judge not. And on the other side of trusting God through their doubts, they were able to answer the questions, it's worth it. It's worth it. And it all came true on Easter morning. It all came true. The musicians could come and give everybody hope this morning. I've told this story before. You know, when you grow up as the pastor's kid and in a small church. I'm not hearing things, right? Everybody else hear that same noise? <laughs> I heard, that's not kind. That's not kind. I've told this story before that as a pastor's kid growing up in a small church, like you serve in just about every kind of ministry. And I've served in different kinds of ministry since before I was 18, way back when. And you know, I've been here a lot of years, and in my mid to late 30s, which I'm still there, um, turn 34 soon, uh, in my mid to late 30s, I just, I started feeling this, this pull, and this, this tug on my heart to, you know, I started hurting for my church, right? And my dad was a pastor here before, if you don't know me and know our story, and dad was getting close to retirement age, and there was no audible voice in the darkness. God knows better than to do that to me. Um, there was no audible voice, but for the first time in my whole life, I felt a pull in my heart to lead my church and to be a bridge between the generation that had raised me and the generation that I was raising. And really, that's, that's what I feel called to do. That's, that's what I feel that my place is in, in all of this, is just to be a bridge pastor. And I don't know how long God needs me for, but God, whatever you say. And so I started, at that time, I was working a job at Sprint, uh, talked with my dad. My dad had actually invited me to kind of start moving into a more front leadership role. And I knew that I couldn't do that and still work the job that I was working. So I started pursuing my photography career in earnest. And, and for a couple of years, I did that working in conjunction with a regular job. And at two, in 2011, I believe it was, and Chelsea can correct the dates if I get them wrong, but I decided that it was time to leave Sprint and give more time 
to the church. And so in November of that year, late November of that year, my boss came to me. I had told him, and he said, okay, there's a severance package on offer, and you can sign this severance package and, and be done with Sprint. So I signed it. My, it was late November. My last official day was to be December 31st, and I think it was on December 11th. Chelsea came to me, and she had noticed a lump in her neck, and she had thyroid cancer, it turns out, and, which, I mean, they say the doctor was happy about it, which was weird. They say, if you're going to get cancer, that's the cancer to get, so yay us. But uh, I was scared, man, scared, leaving my job, leaving my benefits, and doubt came, I mean, just like a downpour, I mean, like rain, just like, is it worth it? Should I go back? Like, I'm not sure, you know, is it true? Am I supposed to be here? Do I, do I really feel this? Is this really from God, or is this just kind of me, like, you know, eating pizza too late at night, just, you know, but I don't think I ever got upset, and if you know my family, uh, we tend to deal with stress by making jokes at really inappropriate moments, so we used to make cancer jokes with Chelsea, uh, we'd go out to eat, and Jason used to tell Chelsea, Chelsea, you can pick the restaurant because you have cancer. So, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we did, and we got through it, and we decided we weren't going to be afraid. So it couldn't get much worse than that, right? Signed the severance package in November. December, Chelsea finds out she has cancer. December 31st was my last day, and I think it was January that I noticed my right hand, the one that I used to click the camera button, the muscles in my right hand started dying. So now my right hand, my photography hand, was dying. And it turns out I had this thing with my funny bone and all this kind of stuff. And so, God, is this, is it worth it? Like, is this going to cost me a hand to be a pastor? Like, what in the world is this? Is, and I'm not really sure that what I felt is true. And, you know, is this really you? And if this is what you're asking us to go through just to start this thing, like it's making me question and doubt whether I'm supposed to start at all. But what was the alternative? What am I going to give my life to if not to doing something for God. If not Jesus, then who? If not what he called me to do, then what am I going to do? And if you're going to run from something, make sure you know what you're running to. So we stayed the course, and I just decided that Chelsea's cancer wasn't my problem, it was God's problem. Decided that my hand wasn't my problem, it was God's problem. He's the one that had called me, and so my task was simply to follow the calling and to never doubt, to trust in a good God and to put everything in his hands and let him take care of the outcome. So Chelsea, just a couple of months after that, had surgery and she had radiation treatment, lots of radiation treatment. So now she fights crime at night in a spider suit and shoots web from her wrists. And... <laughs> that would be so cool, but she doesn't. Now she cooks meatloaf. <laughs> I had surgery on my arm while the, under the influence of drugs. I proposed to two different nurses who both rejected my offer. So I think we came out of everything okay. But when I look at what hung in the balance of that decision, when I look at you and I see all the new faces, all the beautiful faces, when I remember Baptism Sunday that we just had when nine people buried their past in Jesus' name, I remember several of them coming up out of the water and I don't even think they knew in that moment. I'm not one of those preachers that's going to grab your head and shake you and mess your hair up. That's just not me. I'm not that guy. But several of them speaking in tongues as God filled them with His Spirit and the boldness to do His will. And, and I didn't even baptize any of them. It wasn't even me. And I, 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 just, I, I just really feel this, that whole bridge idea. God's simply using me to set this church up to impact more and more lives. And the way that that's going to happen is by more and more of you hearing God's call on your life for yourself. This is not about me. It's not my church. You aren't my saints. This is God's church and you're His and we are here on a mission, and we have no idea what hangs in the balance of following God past our doubts. We have no idea what impact He wants to use us to have in the city. You have no idea the lives that you will change from your love and your compassion and your care. You have no, no idea what your prayers are going to accomplish. You have purpose, and you have destiny. You have design on your life. He knows you. He knew you. He's the one that knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows your story before you even live it. Some of us here, we're already engaged with that, but some of us here are not. And if you're new to City Grace or maybe you've been here a long time, I just, 
I want to get you this morning to this point where you wrestle with this. What is he asking you to do that you're just not sure of? What is he asking you to do that you're wrestling with? You know, you're just not sure if it's worth it. What is he talking to you about that just seems so hard to process? What cost is involved? What truth just seems so difficult to face and to walk through? Is it worth it? Is it true? Is it worth it? Is it true? Is it worth it? Is it true? You're never going to know until you follow him past your doubt. You will never know what hangs in the balance of your decision to move past your doubt until Jesus takes you to the final point he wanted to take you. And you have no idea what or who hangs in the balance of following Jesus. And so for every doubt that you have, and every question that you have, and everything that holds you back and keeps you from taking that next step of commitment, I want you to ask yourself this question. Jesus, if I don't follow you, who am I going to follow? Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Can we all stand in the room this morning? Every head bowed and every eye closed all over the room this morning. Jesus, I thank you for your grace that's here in this moment. I thank you that your love and your mercy has found us as we are. You've not required anything of us, God, on our own. We couldn't bring anything. We couldn't afford this. We can never earn this. But you and your love and your mercy, you have brought us here and now. You have designed us. You have called us. You know us by name. You don't just know that we exist. You know our pain. You know our struggle. You know what, what we wrestle with. But beyond all of it, Jesus, from every doubt that becomes an obstacle, from every fear that tries to rob us of following you, you call to us again. You call us out into places that we can never get to on our own, to experiences that we will never have on our own. But God, the doubts, they're loud sometimes. God, the hesitation, it just, it robs us of energy sometimes to follow you. And, and our trust isn't where we know it should be with you. It's doubt, it's doubt. But help us to see this morning that you wait for us patiently. You stand on the other side of our hesitation with your nail-scarred hands extended and you call us simply to follow you into your great unknown. We have no idea what hangs in the balance of following you, but Jesus, this morning I pray that milestones are reached. God, I pray that, that markers are set. God, I pray that we, we plant some things this morning. We make some consecrations and dedications this morning that we will follow you no matter the doubt. In Jesus' name. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.